0: Welcome, everyone. Thank you all so much for coming out. My name is Mary Palm Claiborne. I'm with the Knox County Public Library. And um, our good friend, Tim Henderson, from the Humanities Tennessee, contacted me and said, would we be interested in presenting this program? And it was right after we had had some local conversations about this very subject. I'm like... We're a little nervous about it, but it's a really important conversation to have. So we are thrilled to have Jeff here to talk about it. Jeff is a scholar from Rhodes College in history with a, with a focus on France. So it's not necessarily the exact subjects we've been talking about here, but it definitely gets to the heart of the philosophy behind these conversations. So help me welcome Dr. Johnson, I should say. Right? <laughs> <Dr. Johnson. laughs> That's all right. Thank you very much. Thank you all so much for coming out at noon uh, on a Monday. It's a great crowd, and I appreciate your time. As Mary Palm suggested, I I was contacted by the folks at Humanities Tennessee and asked uh, if I wanted to do this, and I did an event like this in Memphis, uh, where I live, and they said, would you like to come to Knoxville too? And I said, of course, I'd love to. That would be a great opportunity. Sort of the charge that they gave me in this was to bring not heat but light (laughs) so i'm going to talk about some big questions some big issues I don't know about your local issues here. In fact, I sort of intentionally did not look up the controversies that Mary Palm was just referring to because I didn't want to get into, uh, into that, but rather to kind of take a big bird's eye view, a big picture, and to think about some large issues. And One of the reasons I was asked to do this is because I wrote an op-ed piece that appeared on thehill.com after the Charlottesville uh, things were going on, and I wrote a, a piece that talked about the difference between history and memory, um, and that's what caught Tim Henderson's eye and asked me to do this. So that's kind of what I'm going to talk a little bit about in the first part of the presentation. Now, the second part of the presentation that we did in Memphis, and I say we because when Tim called me, I said, uh, well, you know, I'm happy to do this for you, but you know who you really should get involved in this, and that's my wife. Uh, My wife is an art historian, and she teaches at Memphis College of Art, and she's actually researched and published on the question of historic monuments. That's what her area of research is in. And so in Memphis, she was able to join me, and we did an event like this at the Memphis Public Library, and it was great. But she couldn't travel with me to Knoxville. We have two little kids, and it got complicated real fast. <laughs> so I'm actually going to do her presentation as well. So I'm kind of going to do two, you're going to do two for today, but in, in just one body. Before I begin, I want to thank the folks, uh, Mary Palm, the folks in the Knox County Public Library, the East Tennessee Historical Society, and of course, Humanities Tennessee for sponsoring uh, this talk. My goal here really then, as I was saying, is to talk about history and memory, about how we use and even feel the past right here and now in the present, about how we connect with our ancestors and with places, about how we use the past to help us understand who we are in the present. I'm not really going to talk about Confederate monuments per se, although I'm sure that's in the back of everyone's mind, and it will come up, don't worry. And what I'm certainly not going to do and would never do is to tell anybody this is what you should do with your monuments. Um, I think those are local decisions, local issues. Instead, what I want to do, and as I said, what Humanities Tennessee has asked me to do, is to sort of frame a dialogue about the relationship between history and memory, to think about the dialogue between the past and the present, to think about how monuments and memorials and public art and public spaces often become the focal point or the meeting point between the past and the present. In other words, I want to think a little bit about how and where and why do we choose to live with our past? Now, the question sounds sort of complex, but it really goes to the very heart of human experience. After all, we engage with the past every day, and not only in monuments, But every time you research your family's genealogy or you get out the photo album and you reminisce or you tell family stories around the dinner table or every time you sleep underneath the quilt that your grandmother made, you are engaging in some way with the past. In fact, two historians did a really fascinating survey of people's encounters with the past and showed some striking results. This was a survey that was done, and you can see all these different ways that people sort of think about and live with the past very much in the present. Gathering with their family, visiting a history museum, celebrating a holiday. That's another way in which we touch the past. Reading a book about the past, watching a movie or television program. And then over here is, based on the survey that they did, the trustworthiness of various sources. Uh, of confidence that people put in certain sources. Uh, personal accounts from your grandparents or other relatives. Conversation with someone who was there. In other words, an eyewitness account. College history professors, yay, I made the list. I'm there. Number three on the list, but that's okay. High school teachers, nonfiction books. So we're always thinking about the past. We're always engaging with the past. We're always living with the past. So this is really important stuff. It's not something that that we should think lightly about. Maybe that's what the novelist William Faulkner had in mind when he said the past is never dead, it's not even past. So monuments are definitely one of the ways that we have to bring the past into the present, and it's an important one. And I think one of the questions that we need to think about, though, is what happens when the needs, the political, social, psychological needs, what needs do those monuments serve? And what happens when the needs of a community change, right? So this is an evolving process that we have to keep thinking about. I think it's also important to understand that the idea of tearing down monuments, which is what we've been talking about in the news so much lately, is not new, nor is it unique to our historical moment. So let me tell you a story. Many years ago, at a time of deep political division and anger at the government, a group of men who were often derided as rebels and troublemakers. Today, they probably would have been called terrorists. They listened to the words of an incendiary political statement. Riled up by the words they heard, they rushed to a nearby monument that represented the ruling order of their day, and they began to dismantle it. When they finished, they turned the lead from the statue into bullets that they could use to fight for their cause. What was the date? July 9, 1776. What was the document they heard? The Declaration of Independence. What was the monument? the statue of King George III. Who were those men? Soldiers of the Continental Army in New York. In other words, our country was founded by tearing down a monument. Now, I might have told you other stories, too. I might have told you about the destruction of the Vendôme column in Paris in 1871, which was to overturn Napoleon's legacy. Or I might have talked about the removal of communist-era statues in the former Soviet Union in the 1990s. I might have talked to you about the destruction of the statues of Saddam Hussein. Or I might have talked about the Taliban destroying the Bamiyan Buddhas in Afghanistan. Or I might have talked about the statue of Henry IV in Paris that was torn down as part of the tremendous cultural violence of the French Revolution. Not only did they tear down statues in the French Revolution, but they literally dug up the bodies of monarchs. Um, In other words, statues and symbols come and go, and they have for centuries. So the question then is when and why? These are particularly important questions in a democratic society. Democracy is messy and contentious. It always has been. It always will be. In the United States, we don't have an official history as a totalitarian or an authoritarian regime might. The government doesn't have a monopoly on narrating our national story. So when we think about a monument to a certain event or a person, when we debate or discuss or rally or protest, that's an act of democratic negotiation of members of society debating who gets to tell the story and whose story gets told. The challenge in a democracy is to make sure that every story can find its voice, and I think that's especially true now since so many of the statues that were erected in the past were done without much community input. This leads me to the first of three big points that I want to make today. First of all, I want to think about the difference between the past and history and memory, sort of three terms that I want to try to delineate a little bit. The past, I would suggest, is everything that's ever happened to people and to the planet. Most of the past is unknowable because we have no records or artifacts, no traces that we can look at to help us understand it. History and memory are two very different ways of telling the human story. History is created by historians trying to understand the past based on the records that we do have about the human experience. And that work requires the ability to empathize with people long gone, but also the skill of keeping what I call a sort of analytical distance from the past, to try to see all sides, to try to see things from from multiple sides. In other words, history tries to understand the past on its own very complex terms, keeping in mind the limits and the struggles with which people lived. History also asks us to get outside of our own mind and into the minds of people living in the past to try to understand the choices that they made within the limits that they had. But memory's narrative, I would suggest, only understands the past in terms of the present. It's all empathy and no analytical distance. Memory is concerned only with lifting the best parts of the past into the present and using that story to feed an identity today. Memory makes the past feel good, with no desire for distance or recalling the complex, hard parts. Of the human experience. Memory's narrative simplifies and sugarcoats the past, turning people into either heroes or villains rather than the real human beings that they were. The nuances of the lived human experience are sacrificed to the identity narratives of now. And I think that's one reason that we're having these debates all across the country about monuments. We're struggling to find the space between history and memory. When should we distance ourselves from the past to know the whole complicated story, not just the parts that make us feel good or proud? And how do we tell the whole story in a monument that truly does justice to the fullness of the human experience that we're trying to represent, and not just one side of that story? The second point that I want to make is to think about this idea that because they are primarily acts of memory, traditional monuments are meant to divide us. And let me say that again. Because they are acts of memory... Primarily, traditional monuments are meant to divide us. They are expressions of power, where the winners got to write history, this time in stone or in bronze or in other materials. Uh, Monuments are largely didactic and prescriptive. They tell you what to believe about an event or a person, leaving no room for debate or discussion or dissent. Until recently, monuments were always designed to be one-sided celebrations, commemorations, or memorials. They don't ask the viewer what they think, But tell the viewer what to think In this sense Many monuments approach the idea of an official history Especially when they're placed on public land Because as objects They present no possibility for open Democratic public conversation No one ever walks away from a monument like this Wondering whether the person On the pedestal is supposed to be seen As a hero They bring a memory of the past into the present And hold it up for us to emulate My third point is to ask whether monuments that tell us what to think and leave no room for debate, are those really monuments that help us understand our common story? And here I would draw on the work of scholars who talk about the need to have monuments that do invite conversation rather than shutting it down. And the phrase that often gets used is this idea of memory work, What is memory work? Memory work asks us to actually think about the past and its connection with the present, not simply to put up a monument and consider that the work is done, which is something so often the case with traditional monuments. You put up a traditional monument and you leave it as though that's the only and final statement that could ever be made. Instead, memory work is an active, ongoing rethinking of the past for each generation to, again, claim it or to reject it, depending on the needs of the time that we live in now. Memory work forces us to think about why the past might matter to us here in the present. And the example that I want to give to you, and some of you may know this example from your own experience, is the Memorial to the Murdered Jews of Europe, also known as the Holocaust Memorial in Berlin. This is an amazing memorial space. You, when you enter in these big blocks of, of marble, you can see that the, that the landscape sort of undulates Um, and you're supposed to walk through it and kind of get lost. That's the idea, right? It's to sort of simulate, at least in some level, what was it like to be a Jew in in Hitler's Germany. You walk through, you get lost, you don't know who's coming around the corner, you don't know which way to go, you're never sure if you're going to get out again because the the stones rise up so high above your head that it feels very oppressive, like they're going to fall on you. Um, So it's intended to get you to think and to feel and to experience and to engage with that understanding of the past. Imagine a monument that does not tell you how to understand the past, but rather invites you into a dialogue about what an event might mean. I think the best example that we have, and one that's probably familiar to most people in the room, is the Vietnam Veterans Memorial in Washington. The most amazing thing about this monument is that it poses a question to each visitor about what they think the war meant, even while still honoring each of the dead as a unique life given for their country. The Vietnam Wall has become a place of catharsis and of healing and of dialogue. Of course, it's a memorial, which is a certain type of public monument, but it's, it's been a, a kind of monument that's allowed that memory work to take place around the war. It's allowed people to process a difficult experience and to make it part of our everyday cultural fabric rather than leaving it in our collective repressed memory as a festering wound. The debates, I think, that are happening around statues today are part of the memory work that we need to do as a society to try to make use of the past in the present and to move from memory to history, from simply feeling the past to actually thinking about it. After all, we've never really had the same kind of deep cultural dialogue about the legacy of slavery that we've had about the Vietnam War thanks to the Vietnam Veterans Memorial. What would be an equivalent monument for the history of slavery or the history of the Civil War, one which actually invites us to engage in a dialogue? It's an interesting thing to think about. What are some other examples of memory work that we do have besides the Vietnam Wall in Washington? Here's one, the Soviet Army monument in Sofia, Bulgaria, a very triumphalist Soviet-era monument, soldiers marching together. But what has happened is that people have reinterpreted this monument, (laughs) you might say, have engaged with it, um, have made it into an active space. I love this one. This is the one where they have painted Superman, Captain America, Ronald McDonald, and numerous other figures. Here's the same monument. In this case, painted the colors of the Ukrainian flag um, with a woman dancing with it. This is a kind of memory work that's taking place around this monument, engaging with the legacy of, of... Communism in Bulgaria and trying to think about what it means, and it becomes an, a space for active engagement and conversation and dialogue. Well, I've got another example that is in, of all places, Charlottesville, Virginia, just a five minute walk from the statue of Robert E. Lee that was protested back a few months ago. It's called the First Amendment Wall, where anyone can write and chalk any message that they want. It's on the downtown mall in Charlottesville, which is a shop-filled pedestrian thoroughfare right in the heart of the city and right outside of City Hall. It invites participation and dialogue and public comment of all sorts, including outrage, including criticism. It allows the people in Charlottesville to express multiple values, multiple identities and attitudes in the way that no monument ever could. Let me wrap up the first part, my part of the presentation, uh, with this thought. One of the best articles that I read about what happened in Charlottesville talked about the protest there as a kind of regime change. Statues, the author of this article noted, are among the first casualties of regime change. And to me, as a historian, that made a lot of sense, like the story I began with about our own regime change um, with the American Revolution. The Confederacy lost the Civil War by all military, political, and economic measures, but its defenders seem to have won the culture war in the South by putting up Confederate monuments around the turn of the 20th century. What regime were they cementing? As the winners of that culture war, whose history were they telling? In the process, whose history were they leaving out? Some have argued that tearing down statues is erasing history, but indeed some monuments are also engaged in that process of erasure. For me, all of this really is about recovering untold stories, which the monuments of the powerful don't want us to see. And I think that's something crucial for life in a democratic society. And it also, to me at least, poses the question of whether we are now going through some kind of regime change. And I'll tell you one final story before I move on to my wife's part of the presentation because it's related to the book that I'm um, that I'm currently writing. I'm writing this book about two women who were French artists who left Paris, moved to the island of Jersey, which is one of the islands in the English Channel, the only bit of British soil that the Nazis conquered during World War II, occupied it for four years. And the two women that I'm writing about, they were engaged in a four-year-long anti-Nazi resistance campaign. Essentially, they wrote notes and uh, little messages that they slipped to the Germans, and they wrote them in German and said... You know, the war is lost, you should go home. Real men would be at home defending their families or taking care of their families rather than here occupying our island. All of their their messages were designed to demoralize the German troops. They were caught, they were arrested, they were put on trial, and they were sentenced to death. Now, I'm not going to tell you whether they were killed or not. I'll let you read the book. When it comes out, you can find out more at my website. The book will be com- coming out soon, hopefully. But what's interesting about this story is that after the war they and other people who had also resisted the Nazis their stories weren't talked about they were sort of suppressed and for a long time on the island of Jersey nobody wanted to talk about the occupation in part because actually a lot of people on Jersey and the other Channel Islands had collaborated with the Nazis but they didn't even want to talk about the resistance movements because by talking about resistance it begged the question of well, what were you doing during the war and a lot for a lot of people that was very uncomfortable and there was that need to forget the need to suppress, the need to, um, to push that mem- memory aside. And it's only been in the last 20 years or so that the island of Jersey and some of the other Channel Islands have recovered their war memory, and that's why I put this image of this. This is their liberation monument. It's in, it's in what's called Liberation Square in, in St. Helier in Jersey. Um, so now they finally have commemorated it, but it took a while for that memory to come back. And so I think that's one of the things that emerges, to me at least, out of the story that I'm actively engaged in researching, is this issue about when do we need to forget and when do we need to remember, and that those things change over time, that all of these needs, these psychological, social, uh, historical needs, change over time, and that sometimes monuments are part of that process. Monuments are part of the process of forgetting, and monuments are also sometimes part of the process of remembering. Well, let me switch then, and if I can simulate my wife. Um, so as I said, my wife's name is Ellen Dockman. She's a professor of art history at Memphis College of Art. And she's an expert on, on historic monuments um, and has written and published uh, about that as well. as working on a new book actually herself about the issue of, of monuments. Um, I should say, by the way, my, I am a French historian by training, but one of the things that has led me to think about a lot of these issues that, is that we have a brand new public history program uh, at Rhodes um, where we're training students to do the work of public history in museums and in libraries and archives and in historic preservation and I'm actually in charge of that program so as the chair of the department I also run that program. So I've been thinking and teaching a lot about issues of public history that's how I came into this but as I said my wife has been doing this for much longer than I have Um, and if she were here today she would have said to you that she wanted to do three things. First of all, to place American public monuments into historical context, to think a little bit about the difference between public monuments and public art, and then to think about using public art as a model for recontextualizing problematic public monuments. So in a sense, what this is kind of like, how do we get to this place? How do we get to this point in thinking about the question of monuments? How does that unfold in the American context in particular? The kinds of monuments that we see in the monumental landscape in this country are not new. In fact, they can be traced back thousands of years. That America has inherited a very long tradition of monument building. And most of the forms that we use today, up until relatively recently, up until, say, the last 25 or 30 years maybe, are forms that have ancient roots. So you can see the, um, the standing figure, the obelisk, the triumphal arch. These are all ancient forms that have familiar parallels in the American context, right? Standing form of George Washington, the obelisk, of course, think of the Washington Monument, and then the Washington Square Arch. All of these are ancient kinds of statues. The other one that we're also very familiar with is the ancient form of the equestrian monument, Marcus Aurelius, circa 175. And these statues always depict some kind of military leader, general ruler, or someone in this kind of triumphal form, you know, riding into battle. those equestrian monuments beginning in the Renaissance get used for the purposes of city beautification. And this is an example of Michelangelo, who when he rebuilt the Piazza del Campidoglio in Rome, put that very same equestrian monument of Marcus Aurelius, now he puts it in the middle of this piazza as a way of sort of bringing this public space together. And when you think about other cities and the way that they use public monuments, this is Paris, of course, the Arc de Triomphe, the Champs-Élysées, which is the radial street that goes off to the right of this picture, has numerous monuments all the way down it, right? There's numerous arches. There's an obelisk. There are other things that all end up in the in the Louvre uh, at the other end of the, of the street. So uh, the idea of putting these same kind of traditional monumental forms one after the other to create a monumental space, that's something that a lot of European cities do, um, and that's something then that American cities will try to emulate. In the 19th century, a lot of American city planners were interested in kind of emulating the the work that was done in European cities. So this is Monument Avenue in Richmond, Virginia, right? It's the same kind of idea. One monument after another of these very traditional, in this case equestrian monuments, going down uh, Monument Avenue. City planners wanted their cities to be like European cities, so hence we inherit this long tradition. And if you've been to Monument Avenue in Richmond, you know what that looks like, here's Robert E. Lee. Everything about this monument <laughs> conveys the notion of power, starting with the fact that the entire thing is over 60 feet high um, and that the monument, that the figure, the equestrian of Lee himself is over 14 feet high. Right? So again, everything about this monument, is, there's nothing new about it. There's nothing unique about it. It comes from this long tradition that dates back uh, thousands of years that comes from the European Tradition. The other kind of well known monument in the monumental landscape of the United States is what my wife has called the Standing Great Man Monument. Here's a monument, it's called the Monument of the Four Moors in Livorno, Italy, where you see uh, Fernando de' Medici um, at the top, and below him you see these uh, slaves of his, and that they are part of telling his story, right? The subsidiary figures help to elevate and and provide more grandeur for uh, the man on the pedestal. One of the things that happens over time, especially in the 18th and 19th centuries, is that the category of great men begins to expand, that it begins to include not just political leaders or military leaders, but also comes to include philosophers and artists and scientists. There are always great men. There are almost no great women until much more recently. And the kind of great man figures usually involve some kind of main figure and then some kind of subsidiary figure like you see here. Often they are some kind of allegory that Further supplement the story of the great man. And you see that here in, in what's probably one of the, the most famous great men monuments. This also happens to be an equestrian, but this is uh, the Sherman Monument in Manhattan in, on Fifth Avenue. In some ways, this is kind of the apex of um, not only the great man monument, but it's also kind of comes from the moment that's sort of the high point in American monument building the Beaux-Arts period, late 19th, early 20th century. Uh, It's called Beaux-Arts, this Beaux-Arts style, because it's based on what was being taught in Paris at the École des Beaux-Arts, which was seen as the the most important art school um, where you could study. So American sculptors who were being trained in Paris or being trained by people who had been trained in Paris were sculpting things in the Beaux-Arts style. And the most prolific and the most prominent and the most important of American sculptors in this style is the sculptor of this particular monument, Augustus Saint-Gaudens, who's widely regarded as one of the best monument makers uh, of this period. So here you see the same kinds of features as you see in a lot of the great men monument you see a great man here of course he happens to be on horseback but you also see an allegorical figure of victory sort of moving forward into the present. You see something similar in another very famous St. Gaudens monument this is the Shaw monument in Boston right across from the state house and it's in Boston Common the memorial of the 54th Massachusetts regiment. So again you see Shaw himself in the middle, the great man again he 's on horseback, but you also see that allegorical figure above his head you know it 's victory it 's you know the spirit of the people i 'm not sure exactly what it is, <laughs> but it 's there, sort of further elaborating on um, on his story. You also see subsidiary figures in this case, the actual members of the fifty fourth regiment um, this is an African American regiment they are not depicted in any sort of fully realized form. Instead, clearly this is a monument to the great man, Shaw, not to the actual soldiers that were fighting in his regiment. Later on, the names of the soldiers in the regiment would be added, but they would be added to the backside of this monument. So everything about these kinds of Man on a Horse, Great Man Monuments, all speak to this idea about mastery and control. It's very clear that that's what the message that's being conveyed here. There's no way to read this as, you know, Stonewall Jackson is not a wilting flower, right? I mean, this is a great man on a a big horse who's in charge of the situation. And those were the specific kinds of monuments that builders wanted to dictate to the viewing public, building on what I was saying before. These are didactic monuments that are very clear about what they're intended to mean. Another kind of great man monument that you also see, this is the original Lincoln Memorial. It's called the Freedman's Memorial to Abraham Lincoln. In Lincoln Park, what we think of as the Lincoln Monument is further down the mall, but this is directly behind the U.S. Capitol. And here you see the primary figure, the, the great man. You see Lincoln, and he is clearly the subject of this monument. You see his hand extended over A kind of representational allegorical figure of a slave. He's liberating the slave. Clearly the liberation comes from Lincoln. The slave is not an active agent in his own liberation, but Lincoln is the one who's doing the emancipating here. The slave is there to only sort of serve the purpose of telling the story uh, of the great man. Again, the great man idea continues on and it begins to expand. And so you get a great man monument of someone like Martin Luther King. That's very much in the tradition of the Great Man Monument. And where we're sort of leading with all of this is to say that ultimately this becomes the kind of monument that Americans like to see. But what we don't like is this. This is the Martin Luther King Monument in Memphis. <laughs> this is abstract, right? And people, generally speaking, especially when it comes to public, public monuments or public art, don't really like abstraction. And that's especially true. that We, we increasingly are willing to accept it in, in public art, but, we, but when it comes to our monuments that are intended to celebrate, that's the harder sell. It doesn't have the same kind of visual clarity. It doesn't have the same kind of clear didactic message that you do with a realistic figural statue of someone like uh, Dr. King. Then when you, when you get to the King Monument in Washington, you get a little bit of both. You get a little bit of abstraction, but you still get that figural reality. This is the mountain of despair and the stone of hope. This was based on an actual King quote. But so you still get this a little bit of this kind of abstract, you know, this is the the figural allegorical mountain. Uh, But at the end of the day, you can see Dr. King. You know what he looks like. There he is. It's nothing like this, which you can't, you know, where is Dr. King in this? You can't really tell. It's a much more abstract idea, right? Unfortunately, though, what that leads to is this proliferation, especially in the, in the late 19th century and early 20th century, the, this proliferation of monuments that all look very samey. You end up with lots of realistic figural monuments, but they all kind of look alike. <laughs> so who are these guys? Anybody know? Um, I have the answers here. They're all actually... Um, people that are in Lafayette Park in Washington, just very close to the White House, Marquis de Lafayette, Thaddeus Kosciusko, and the Count, the Comte de Rochambeau. But they all kind of are hard to distinguish from one from the other. They all have this very samey quality about them. This, ironically, is also what ends up happening when it comes to Civil War monuments. One of the things, and when my wife told me about this when she was, this, this was a number of years ago, we started talking about these issues, and she <laughs> talked about the idea of mass-produced monuments, it totally blew me away. Yeah. And when we gave this talk in Memphis, this was the slide where everybody kind of burst into laughter. (laughs) Because what you don't realize is that so many of the Confederate monuments um, that we're debating and discussing are actually mass produced. Um, And so the two statues that you see, this one over here is a Union soldier, this one over here is a Confederate soldier, but they're exactly the same. They come from the same molds in the same factories. The only difference is that His belt buckle says U.S., and his his belt buckle says C.S. Um, You could eventually get to the place where you could customize, you could do some tweaks and add some different uh, features and so forth. But as it turns out, a lot of the statues, a lot of the monuments that are in our monumental landscape in the United States are, in fact, mass-produced. Here is what's called the hiker. Um, This is ours in Memphis. This is the monument to the Spanish-American War. And the hiker exists in a number of different places. Here he is in Memphis. Here he is in Syracuse, New York. I know that our World War I monument in Memphis is also a mass-produced statue. It it looks a little bit different, um, but this is one called the Spirit of the American Doughboy. Here he is in Helena, Arkansas and Meridian, Mississippi. So the figural monument becomes so important that we're willing to even have this kind of mass-produced element to it. The one big but in all of this is that in the last 25 or so years, we've become increasingly willing to accept a certain amount of abstraction. And here the Vietnam Veterans Memorial is kind of the turning point. The, the, kind of the question is, you know, how do you commemorate not just one person, right? If you have a great man, it's sort of easy you build a statue. How do you commemorate hundreds and thousands of people, right? And that's especially true not only when you're talking about something like you know, trying to, to name all the dead from Vietnam, but what happens when you're talking about something like 9-11, right? How do you commemorate that in a way with a single-figural monument? It becomes very difficult. And so you have – this is the 9-11 monument in uh, New York. It's called Reflecting Absence. And it is about the absence rather than the presence, but this is clearly a sort of a conceptual abstract monument. Again, it also uses the names of the dead as another way to sort of talk about that. Um, but even with the Vietnam Memorial, some of you may remember, was very controversial when it was created. A lot of people really hated it. And there was a desire on the part of some people to say, we don't like this much abstraction, so we're going to try to have some kind of figural monument in the midst of this. So if you've been to the Vietnam Memorial, you know that very nearby there is a figural monument of soldiers that tries to represent the actual human bodies that are not captured by the name. So even, even though we accept a certain amount of abstraction, we're willing to have, uh, we, need to, we feel like we need to have some physical representation. This is the Korean War monument which is kind of a little bit of everything. Some people have argued that it's sort of a jumble because it's got the big granite wall, but it's also got figural sculptures. It's also got photographs. It's got a little bit of everything to try to pull together all these different threads uh, of what people do with monuments. We have increasingly a kind of divergence between public memorials or, or public monuments and public art, the kinds of things that artists want to do in in the landscape does not look like people. It does not look figural or representational. Instead, public artists want to do these kind of big interventions in the landscape that make some sort of comment. This is Robert Smithson's Spiral Jetty. It's a comment about environmental issues. It's a comment about pollution. It's a comment about a lot of things. But this is not the kind of thing that a community can rally around together and say, yes, let's fund this with our tax dollars, right? Let's have some sort of public art intervention into the landscape. Or Carol Walker's Marvelous Sugar Baby. uh, that's a comment about race, the legacies of slavery, uh, and the sugar production, the sugar industry. It's an important statement of public art, but not the kind of thing that people want to build. People want to build MacArthur or the Tuskegee Airmen, right? Not those kind of big... Things that, and, it's, and so people make this distinction, and artists make this distinction between public monuments and public art. These are public monuments. This is public art. Wheatfield, uh, a confrontation in Battery Park City. Again, not the kind of thing that most people would say, hooray, this really makes me you know, <laughs> excited about, uh, about public art. This is more from a, from a fine art kind of, of perspective. And yet, there may be some things that we can learn from public art, that might help us to think through and activate those public monument spaces. How do we think about activating public monuments? How can they be part of a conversation or a dialogue? How can we use some techniques from public art that might actually be beneficial to the conversations that we're having today? Ultimately, these are local community matters. These are built-in communities. They matter to communities. These are local issues that people have to decide, and everything should be on the table. But with everything on the table, that means... In some cases, the, the result is leave it, uh, leave it alone. In other cases, the result might be take it down and destroy it. And in other cases, it might be something in between, some kind of, of middle ground, some kind of way to try to you know, maybe you take it, relocate it, re-erect it in a museum, or put it in some other place. But we also begin to get into some very tricky questions. Museums don't want all of these statues. <laughs> right? What do we do, especially if they're mass produced, like the ones I was showing you a minute ago? But at the same time, you wouldn't want to take down something like an Augustus St. Gaudens, who's pr- considered to be the premier American artist of the late 19th century, right? That would have millions of dollars worth of value. So these start to be very tricky questions. And if if you do take a statue down, you know, where do you store it? Does the museum pay? for it, the taxpayers pay for it. There are all of these kind of questions that go along with it. So what are some possible things that you can do? One thing you can do is recontextualize. This is a monument that is a highly problematic monument, in my opinion. It's called the Good Darkie. Sometimes it's called Uncle Jack. It was built in 1927 and erected in Natchitoches, Louisiana. It sat on the main street in Natchitoches, Louisiana from 1927 to 1968 when it was taken down in the wake of the King assassination. It was built by a local man who felt like he wanted to honor the African-Americans that he knew and that had been the servants of his family. And, and so it's, it's a very condescending and patronizing statue um, that seeks to sort of you know replicate the notion of the faithful slave, but this is in a post-slavery context. Here he is tipping his hat to you in deference to the white folks of the town. In 1968, when this statue was taken down, it was done in the middle of the night. Um, it was controversial. Uh, the, the daughter of the guy who put it up wasn't happy by, about taking it down, but it sat for 4 years in storage until eventually it was donated to LSU and today it lives at the LSU Rural Life Museum now the LSU Rural Life Museum is a museum of rural agriculture so there's a lot of farm implements and tractors and cabins and so you know what was it like to live in Louisiana in the 19th century But the only place that they could figure out that would take this thing was the LSU Rural Life Museum. And they've relocated him now. But when Ellen and I went down there a number of years ago, they had installed him at the entryway to the Rural Life Museum so that as you enter the museum, there he was tipping his hat to you in this act of racial deference. What they also, though, tried to do was to use some some text. Um, And you can see here, here's a kind of I shouldn't say too much, but it's not a very attractive plaque. Let's just put it that way. Um, It's not a beautiful plaque. Um, How many people are going to stop and read this plaque that tells the story? How many people are really going to sort of engage with this? That's one of the problems with putting up a plaque. When you've got text and an image, people are going to gravitate towards the image, right? The image is the more powerful statement here. And even though the text recontextualizes it, it's probably a losing battle. You're going to look at the image rather than read the text. Good text is hard to write. Usually people write way too much text. Um, and often the text can be just as problematic as the image itself. Um, another thing that you can do is, and sometimes this is used, the, the phrase is used to refer to this as a counter-monument, or so put two monuments in dialogue with one another. So I showed you this image before, the Thomas Ball uh, Friedman's Monument to Abraham Lincoln. Initially, when this statue was erected in the 1870s, it was facing west, towards the U.S. Capitol. But in 1974 when a statue was erected in that same park to honor African-American educator Mary McLeod Bethune, they took the statue of Lincoln and turned it around 180 degrees so that now it faces east. And it now faces the the Bethune statue. These two statues are looking at each other now. So here is Lincoln emancipating the slave, but here is Mary McLeod Bethune, African-American educator, teaching children. And so this becomes a way to sort of put these two Statues with two different meanings now into dialogue with each other, and in the process, changing the meaning of the original statue, right? Transforming the meaning of Lincoln's emancipation into something else, right? And so, you know, you can think about the possibilities of what that means. Maybe what Bethune is doing is an extension of that process of emancipation, but instead now of of the African-American figure having no agency. Here, the African-American figure has tremendous agency, right? So there's all sorts of ways you can think about the kind of, of reinterpretation coming out of that. And here's a final example that I'll give you. Trafalgar Square, which is the enormous square that was rebuilt in the middle of London to honor Admiral Lord Nelson after the Battle of Trafalgar. So there he is on the Nelson column. But there are four plinths around the column, three of which have other naval heroes, But there's a fourth plinth, the empty plinth. They never got around to putting something on that particular plinth. So the City of London has allowed artists to come in and put things sort of in a rotating basis on that plinth as a way of exhibiting their work, but also to engage with what the meaning of this public space is. So Trafalgar Square is an important space in the context of British national identity because the Battle of Trafalgar, you know, is this huge sort of moment for British nationalism, Napoleonic Wars, it's this kind of, you know, still resonates. But some artists have come in and done things like this. Katarina Fritsch, she puts a big blue rooster on the fourth plinth, which on the one hand seems sort of funny and silly, but it's intended to be in some ways kind of a comment on the other three men in the, or the other four men in the, in the square. Right? In other words, maybe she's making a comment that they are preening male birds, <laughs> right? just like this cock that she's now put on the fourth plinth. Right? And here's another example. This is Yinka Shonibare, who puts uh, this artwork called Nelson's Ship in a Bottle, Shinabari is an African artist, and a lot of the work that he uses um, is African textiles, and so the sails of the ship are made of African textiles. And so this is his way of commenting on what's happening in the rest of Trafalgar Square by saying, you know, Nelson, yes, Nelson's a great naval hero, but he's also part of the British Empire. He's colonizing other people. He's engaged in the expansion of British power out into the world, and if you're on the receiving end of that power, it looks very different. This is an artist called Christoph Wojciuszko who did this project called Abraham Lincoln War Veteran Projection. In Union Square in New York, there's a statue of Lincoln. And what he did was he he took video film of returning Iraqi war veterans, or veterans from the Iraq War. And he filmed them talking about their experiences. And then at night, what he would do is project their faces onto the statue of Lincoln um, so that it looks like the statue is actually moving. So you hear their voices, you see their faces, you see their hands moving. It actually looks like the statue has kind of come to life. And this is a good example of this idea both Ellen and I have talked about in these presentations of thinking about how you use a monument, how you activate it as a democratic space, how you activate it as a space of conversation to do that memory work, to do that engagement with the past rather than simply leave it alone as though the monument is the only possible thing that could ever be said about this. All right. Well, I thank you all very much. Uh, thank you for coming out today. I appreciate it. Thank you for listening to a podcast of Knox County Public Library. To hear other episodes, please visit our website at knoxlib.org. That's k-n-o-x-l-i-b dot O-R-G.